Well, let's dive into this text today. Uh, they left me alone on the worst one, <laughs> so go easy on me today. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about um, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. So we're going to be in chapter um, 11 through um, part of 13. Um, so let's read a little bit of this text together. We're going to do a lot of reading of the text. I think there's a lot of rich content uh, in here. We won't always read um, all of the text um, especially once we get into like tabernacle and some of the laws and things like that. Um, but I think this week it bears reading uh, a close reading. Um, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor and every woman is to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials and in the sight of the people. Moses, says, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or will be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, in order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. What strikes you from that text? A couple of things I had noted before was not a dog will growl at any of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. And I never remembered them saying, go to your neighbor and ask for silver and gold. Mm -hmm. Is that Egyptian neighbors? Yes. Yes. Yes, they were ready to get rid of them, so they would give it to them. Uh, well, it does say um, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And so uh, it, it almost makes you wonder um, if the people weren't okay with what Pharaoh was doing. If they, if Pharaoh wasn't in charge, if the Israelites would have been able to leave before. Because um, Moses, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt. So I think it sounds like there might have been some sympathy from their neighbors. But could also be like, you guys have brought a lot of terrible stuff on us, so <laughs> take my bracelets and go. <laughs> what else stands out to you? I wasn't here last week, but have, have y'all talked, you talked about, um, in depth about why God hardened Pharaoh's heart? I also wasn't here last week. Okay. Um, was that shared quite a bit last week? Kind of got there. Okay. Pretty locked in the first part. Yeah. Yeah. More so, so I think. 
Yep. Yeah. So I, I, it's a hard thing to understand, right? Why would God have hardened Pharaoh's heart? Um, Some of the commentaries that I have read um, remind us that um, every other time it talks about a hardening of the heart, uh, it is Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, And this is the only instance where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Um, And so, um, you know, we do as humans have free will. And so I think a lot of the way uh, scholars think about this is that God knew what Pharaoh was doing. God knew Pharaoh's heart wouldn't be softened in this way. And God was saying, I'm going to allow this to happen so that, I'm I'm going to continue to allow these bad things to happen so that my ultimate purposes can happen. I'm gonna let this run its full course and let the way Pharaoh's heart is already trending continue trending that direction so that I can do the thing that I need to do for my people. As far as a long-term result, um, if God stopped them after the, the locust came through and that was all that ever happened, we wouldn't be here talking about it today. Yeah. Uh, it was for God's purposes in the long run yeah. that it would be something really, really exceptional. And then all the things that came from it, you know, passed over yeah. I don't. I don't know that. Um, <clears throat> that I would say that God did this so that He would be glorified. I think God legitimately gave ten chances. Uh, I think God was hopeful in each one of those chances, e- even knowing um, how things would go. I think God was hopeful. Uh, I don't think death and destruction are what God wanted for for Israel or for Egypt, uh, but it's, it's almost like um, what Joseph said um, to, his, to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so it's almost like God saying the, the, the worst of humanity, this decreation, this killing of, of all of the sons of um, the Israelites, um, of drowning them in the Nile, like all of these horrible genocidal things you meant for evil, but I'm actually going to turn that into something that is going to be good, and people will see um, hope and beauty and um, and a glimpse of God, in, even in the midst of all of that. How does that resonate with you all? Something else that stood out to me, like in my mind, probably because we're reading it from a child's perspective with our son right now, but like in my mind, I always remember the story about you know, there was the Egyptians. And then there's the Israelites that are the enslaved people. But, you know, in verse 4, it talks about, like, there's this other subset of enslaved people that are impacted by this. Yep. You know, and that's, that's a new twist on me. Like, I'm thinking, like, wow, wait, there's, there's other people that maybe they're innocent, maybe they're not. Yeah. Right? But, but the same destruction is falling on them. Absolutely. Just the Egyptians, the Israelites. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there later, in a, but in another verse in the, in the Exodus, as Israel is leaving... Uh, a whole host of other people are leaving with them, and uh, a lot of people wonder if it isn't other enslaved people groups, like the Cushites, one of which um, Moses would marry down the road. So, <clears throat> so we have this um, block of, of text saying, here's what's going to happen. And then we get 28 verses of... A pause where it starts talking about the Passover feast. Um, 
We have rules regarding the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are two uh, different feasts, uh, but they happen um, in quick succession of one another. Um, So Passover is one day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day feast. And um, as we talked about before, this was probably um, fully written down um, while Israel was in exile in Babylon. And so um, this would have been kind of an interjection to remind people, like, here's the narrative and here's the story up to this point, and now this is why we do this thing. Uh, But the pause also creates some... um some tension. It creates some suspense and some tension for the reader. Um, And then also it's introducing some liturgical elements. And so here's what you're going to do as a people. So liturgy literally means the work of the people. It's about how um, people worship together. And so this, um, these liturgical elements are talked about. And one way of viewing this is you're on the cusp of becoming a new people, uh, a separate people with a separate God from um, the Egyptians. And in order to do that, you're going to need some new practices that orient you and um, and help you uh, in your understanding of who you are as the people of Israel, as the people of Yahweh. Um, and then it says in chapter 12, verse 1, <coughs> Um, this will be for you the first month. So it's kind of a rewriting of the calendar of this is a new beginning for you. Um, This event that's going to take place is going to mark the first month. It doesn't say this happened in the first month. It says this this will be a new beginning. This will be a new month for you. And um, there are a few other times in scripture uh, where it talks about the first uh, month or the first day of the first month. Um, and, and those will be understood as um, creation. So the the creation of the world, of course, happened on the first today. Uh, and then when Moses, nope, sorry, uh, when Noah exits the ark, that happens on the first day of the first month. Uh, and so again, new creation, um, a, a new beginning, a fresh start. Um, and then we have this here. And then later on, when the preparation for building the tabernacle begins, that will begin on the first day of the first month. And so each time it's pointing to something new beginning, new creation that's happening, um, and, and will be assigned to the people that this is kind of a fresh start. So you have that little pause. And then we have the feast of the Passover. So God has spoken to Pharaoh and said, here's what is going to happen. Uh, if you if you do not relent, I'm giving you a warning. So God, I think God is, is even saying, here's what will happen if you don't let my people go. And I think if Pharaoh had said, okay, you can go, none of this would have happened. Uh, but God, of course, knows the way that this is all going to go down. And so he um, shares with the Israelites what they need to do in order to avoid this. So um, starting in chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. 
And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this sacrifice? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. What strikes you from these passages? Do, do um, does the Jewish community, when they do Passover, do they do that now still? With No, um, because there is no sacrifice in, in oh. um, Jewish community. I think there is one exception in certain places of um, um, sacrificing a chicken on certain uh, days, but there is no more um, no more sacrifice, and so they celebrate um, through a feast where they have some some elements of food that remind them of this journey. But up until Jesus' time, they would have been doing this. One new thing that sort of struck me is just, you know, God could have just passed over them now and he would have what it like. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't need blood on the doorpost and know who his people are, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Just, just giving that instruction and just that kind of call to obedience, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Why? Why did God ask for their obedience in this? Kind of an outward expression of faith. Yeah. Well, if I was an Egyptian, I'd be like, "What's going on? Why are they painting?" You know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very true. In some ways, it kind of strikes me as baptism for us. Yeah. Grace is obviously Yeah, it's it's available, and um, we're not passive in in it. Um, we have a, a role to play in participation of it as well. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both both you and the Israelites. Go, serve the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And ask a blessing for me too. I'm not going to pretend this is easy. I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers to why God would have um, not just allowed this, but done this and participate in it. Um, it's, it is something that I think takes honest wrestling. Um, and I will note, um, we have 
verses 29 and 30 that talk about um, this plague, what God did. Uh, and that is contrasted to paragraphs and paragraphs about locusts and hail and uh, boils and all sorts of other things. This is the, the shortest um, explanation or telling of uh, any of the plagues. Uh, and there's a somberness to it. There's not a celebration in this um, even for the Israelites, who um, this ultimately led to their freedom, um, this passage is not one of um, a celebratory nature. Uh, it is solemn. It's not what anybody wanted, including God, I think. Um, another thing to note at the end of this passage, um, rise up. Um, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. This is the first time that Pharaoh has called um, the people Israelites and not Hebrews. Um, so giving them uh, a new name and um, kind of the, the name that God has called them. Um, go and serve the Lord. So um, in here, this word Lord um, is the word that is translated Yahweh. And this is the first time that Pharaoh has used the word Yahweh. So um, every other time when Moses has come to Pharaoh, um, he will say, I, I don't know this God that you're talking about. Um, who is this God to me? And this is the first time that Pharaoh is saying, okay, I, I know who Yahweh is. I'm going to say Yahweh's name. Uh, and again, we have to remember that um, this is not a battle between um, Pharaoh and God. This is a battle between uh, the gods of Egypt and the, the god who is Yahweh. Um, Pharaoh um, would have been seen as a deity. Um, the, the question in... Um, the fact that there are multiple gods is not questioned in the book of Exodus. Um, there's, there's not a trying to prove that um, God is the only god. Uh, it is simply saying that God is the God. It's pointing to what kind of God Yahweh is and why Israel should worship that God. Um, and so there, there is no question here that um, Pharaoh is saying in this ask a blessing for me too, that he is admitting, okay, Yahweh God is bigger than the gods of the Egyptians. He, of course, quickly relents after that, which we'll get into next week, um, and, and more death and destruction um, take place that, again, don't have to take place. Um, but um, in this moment, um, Pharaoh recognizes who, who Yahweh is. Something that I just, just put for me for the first time, like, again, God kind of always viewed this as a household, the way we think about a household today, mm -hmm. right, and how painful that would be to lose a child, yeah. the first child. but reading this literally is the firstborn, mm -hmm. it doesn't say just children, Yes. Right? and so you think about like, especially how multiple generations people live in a house, like four out of the seven people in a household like that, just how painful and destructive that would have been, yeah. 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 We think of this sometimes as um, as all of these firstborns being babies or infants, uh, and I don't think that's the case. There's nothing in here, um, and and of course, what's happening here is a is a contrasting of of um, what has happened um, originally with with um, what Pharaoh was doing to 
the Hebrew babies to the Israelite babies. Um, and, and it wasn't just the firstborn, it was every male. Um, and so it was, um, I think sometimes when we're wrestling with this text, we look at our 21st century context and we say, well, what a horrible thing. But if you were a person living in that time um, who, who believed an eye for an eye and a truth for a truth, or a tooth for a tooth, and what goes around comes around sort of, this is um, what God is doing here is actually more just than what Pharaoh was doing. So um, even, even though it's terrible, um, one, there were multiple ways out. Um, there were 10 chances for this to not happen. Um, and Pharaoh never gave the Israelites any chances. And then, again, there was a warning that this was going to happen um, and, and, and gave a final chance. God, God didn't spring this on Pharaoh. God says, this is what's going to happen. Um, and even when Moses was sharing this with Pharaoh, was saying, even in your household, and so was, was giving a warning, uh, whereas Pharaoh was, was killing all of the baby boys of, of Israel. Um, when it says a great cry went up, a loud cry in Egypt, um, the other time that that is used in uh, Exodus is when it says God heard the cry of the Israelites um, after the death of their children uh, by being thrown into the Nile from from um, Pharaoh. And so it's it's kind of a full circle moment of this destruction that you had planned is now coming back around on you, and you are reaping what you have sown in the destruction um, that you had tried to cause. So from a storytelling perspective, the, the premise of the first book, the line of Exodus, is that this new God is absolutely we just put a period on this. You did it to one, I did it to all, in a very exact way. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at the way, at least my understanding of a lot of Jewish stories are in the way, there's no question that this isn't a singular God in one place. It is, I put the final period on all of this. Yes. And I think that's the first time I've read it in such a way that, to your point, it was the original story that it circles in and yes. it's bigger and bigger. But it went back and said, you can do it. In one way, I can do it across the board. Yeah. And to your point, that's when Pharaoh changes the language from a deity mm-hmm. to a respect of potentially the deity. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm debating. No, we'll, we'll shift into the next thing. Um, we'll circle back to this firstborn idea in just a minute um, because it becomes relevant again in a moment. Um, but let's let's move on with the text. Um, so we have Pharaoh who has said, called um, Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and said, go right now, get your people and leave. So the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had acted according to the word of Moses. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. So as they're leaving, they're not leaving with nothing. Um, They are leaving with uh, the gold and silver of Egypt, which is um, some scholars um, talk about that as uh, reparations for their slavery um, and for the, the harsh way that they were treated by the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides little ones. A mixed crowd also went up with them and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. 
It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. <clears throat> this number, 600,000 men on foot, um, that is quite a debated number. So if you have 600,000 men, you have somewhere between two and three million people with all their livestock. Uh, and so it has been estimated that um, even going out as a great crowd, that many people with all of their livestock and all of their belongings and all of their babies and all of their elderly people and all of the sick, um, that it would take two weeks for the people at the back of the line to reach where the people from the front of the line had started. And so um, that, that feels like a, a really big number. <laughs> um, and so there's some, some ways to kind of talk through this. One, uh, that 600,000 um, is a number that we later find when they're census counting um, under David. And so it's possible that it's kind of a reference to, um, we find places in this story of, um, like with the Passover, it's not that God called your ancestors out of uh, Egypt. It's that God called you out of Egypt, that God rescued you from slavery. Uh, and so it becomes personal to each generation. Uh, another way to think about it is um, that that word for a thousand, LF, um, can also mean like a unit in an army. And so it's possible that um, this is uh, their way of kind of talking about the, the each tribe as sort of a half of a, a unit. Um, and uh, it's also well known that in um, ancient Near Eastern um, writing um, and the way they were keeping tally of things about how many people they killed in battle and how many people they had was just exaggerated. And that was normal and um, something that people did. So... Um, so don't get too hung up on that. It's, uh, it's just literary storytelling, I think. So, um, and so then, so now we have the Exodus, they leave, and then, um, we have more, uh, another kind of break where we're talking about more festivals and rites. So Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. Um, and we'll see pretty pretty quickly after um, their rescue um, that the, the Israelites are going to need some reminders. Um, they're going to need some reminders of who God is and what God has done for them because they forget really quickly, um, just like us, I think. Um, it's easy to look at them and be like, how could they have seen what they saw and still behave the way they're behaving? Um, it's a little harder to notice those things in ourselves sometimes, but... Um, but I think these festivals are in place as a reminder of who God is and what, ha what God has done for them.
And then we shift into the consecration of the firstborn. So when the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors and has given it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn offspring of your livestock that are males shall be the Lord, but every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck. Every firstborn male among your children you shall redeem. When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by the strength of, of the hand of the Lord, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from human firstborn to the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every male that first opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as an emblem on your forehead that by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Um, and remember, this language of firstborn, too, we have also seen it um, when God called Moses um, originally. Um, God talks about Israel as being God's firstborn. Um, and so you have the, the literal firstborns, but also you have Israel being seen as consecrated to God as a whole people because they are God's firstborn. Um, this is not a practice that is unique to the Israelites. This is a practice that a lot of other ancient Near Eastern cultures did and that the Egyptians did. And so um, in, in thinking about the death of the firstborn as well, all of the firstborn of Egypt would have been consecrated to the gods of Egypt. And the ways that um, inheritance and wealth and family names and position and power were passed down was through the firstborn. And so um, to, to the point about this, this wasn't babies um, necessarily, um, it was the very people who were keeping the power structures um, the way that they had been. Uh, it's the, the very people who are receiving the power and the people that are receiving the wealth and are kind of perpetuating this who have been consecrated to the gods of Egypt. And so that, that also kind of helps um, in my mind um, explain what's going on here um, when you look at um, why this happened, why, why the firstborn. Um, I don't, for me, it doesn't, uh, it's not a free pass. It's not like, well, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, I guess it's okay for all those people to have died. Uh, but it does add some nuance. And, um, and especially in our culture, it's, it's so hard to be a Western person who has such an, um, an our worldview is just so individual um, to, to consider a worldview that, that is so communal. Um, and so just keep that in mind as we're, as we're wrestling with these texts. Um, so that's all of our text for today. Um, let's move into some discussion. So overall, what stands out to you from the passages that we read and why? Yeah, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, we have our moments of uh, clearest uh, you know, awareness, uh, usually in the pit of you know, the absolute. And, you know, when Pharaoh and, and the rest of them um, had their firstborn, you know, taken away, it was like an absolute epiphany that mm -hmm. this is real, you know, this, you know, God is God. And then, 
it's just amazing how quickly that can reverse, you know, yeah. how we forget it, as, as you mentioned. Um, but that, that really struck me, because I've had moments like that too. It's like when you are on the verge of losing everything or yes. you have, that's when you have moments of clarity that the scales just fall off and you realize what's most important. Um, and those moments are, are you know, really precious, but you can, it's hard to hold on to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, would Pharaoh not have been a firstborn? Yeah. Yeah, I have that same question. Uh, but Pharaoh is not just a firstborn, Pharaoh is God. And so it seems like, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of questions about this because if God could have just killed Pharaoh, um, <laughs> who was the one causing all these problems to begin with, uh, and the Israelites could have left, um, why, why didn't that happen? Uh, but instead... Pharaoh was spared. But Pharaoh would have been the firstborn, I mean, that's like, yeah. which is how he would have, you know, when his father died, that's how he would have been. Unless there had been an older brother before him that had, had died younger, um, or or um, unless the Pharaoh before him. The text just says when the Pharaoh before him died, he rose to power. So that could have been his older brother. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. But I asked that same question of myself. Wait a minute, wouldn't he have been... <laughs> just thinking about like the war in Ukraine, people waking up and all this destruction. It wasn't like that exactly, but everyone lost somebody. Yeah. And the weeping and the yeah. don't know what they would do next. You know, a lot of burials and a lot of Yeah. Just like I just think of the Ukraine them waking up like that. Yeah. Or in Turkey with the earthquake, you know, people trying to find their Yeah. It would have been devastating. Not, not a house um, didn't lose somebody. Except for the Israelites. Yep. I wish, they, I wish it would have happened. I guess that's an understood, but... Right. Not a house in Egypt. So, uh, yeah. so Israel lived in Goshen. Uh, so um, two distinct places. Just yeah. Same area. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yep. I, I think a lot about, again, trying to tie this story to how we, at least how I view the world today, you know, and, and kind of struggle with atrocities happening and, and wanting immediate square mm-hmm. justice, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking about this and that this played out over decades, you know, and we don't know, like, how to. Right. At least I don't know how fast those plugs came and went. Was it 24 hours? Was it months? Right. Mm-hmm. Right now, yes. you know, I have to remember that. 
see something that I want action take today, but that doesn't mean that God's not good. Yeah. You know, it's just we just don't see it the way that God is. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't always love or understand God's timing. Um, I, don't, I don't understand why it took so long for Jesus to come. I don't understand why Jesus would have been born a baby and need to grow up for 33 years before he started preaching. I don't know why it's been so long since, uh, since Jesus' resurrection um, for, for him to still not have returned. Um, but that is a theme that happens over and over and over again in Scripture. And... Um, even in the birth story of Jesus, there's redemption offered for Egypt. So in the middle of the night, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, get your people out of here, go. Um, and in the middle of the night, an angel came to Joseph and Mary and said, um, Caesar wants to kill you. And they escaped to Egypt and they found rest and solace in Egypt and were a part of uh, the story of redemption in in a way that... Um, that saved humanity. Um, and I don't understand the timing of that, and I still have a lot of questions about it, um, and it's there. So the, the only explanation that gives me any peace is that the thing that we think is, the, is worse, death, the death of someone, the thing that we think is worse, um, God must not think that's the worst thing that could happen. Um, and I don't, I don't know why, but that's the only thing that I think gives me peace and comfort when I read difficult stories like this. So. What other questions are you left with? It's a little nuanced for me, but it talks about, you know, the Lord struck down with the death of the first one. A few verses earlier, it talks about protecting from the destroyer. Mm-hmm. And that's a lowercase Yes. Word. I'm just kind of curious what it's referencing, the destroyer. Um, uh, yep. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure what to make of it because um, there are times you know, when, when God is telling uh, Moses what God is going to do, God says, I am going to pass through. Um, and then when it happens, it's a destroyer that passes through. And so um, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm not sure what the distinction is there um, or why it would have been a, a destroyer. But good noticing. It's, it's possible it was simply a messenger of God. Um. <clears throat> I was sort of wondering about as these all these plagues happened, we aren't sure how long it took. <clears throat> what was the uh, typical Egyptian on the street thinking about their leadership? Yeah. <clears throat> now, today we complain about everything we don't like that yeah. happens in Washington, but... They must have been thinking, just get these people out of here, will you? But Absolutely. And part of me wonders, you know, if God had just zapped Pharaoh from the beginning, um, a new Pharaoh would have come in that Pharaoh's place, and, and the people of Egypt would never have seen who Yahweh God is. Um, and so a part of me wonders if, if maybe um, some of that wasn't for their benefit as well, to be able to say, um, you know, the, the, the God called a people, and he called that people to be a blessing to the to the world, to, to be a light, to um, to show the world who Yahweh was. And so, um, even though God makes distinctions and God has 
you know, created this firstborn and this chosen people, um, the purpose of them is for, is for everybody. And so I, I do think that, um, that it was for the benefit of the Egyptians as well. In light of major themes of what kind of God is Yahweh and which God will you serve, how does that help you understand these texts? We've already kind of touched on some of this, but if you have anything to add. I, was, I found it interesting to learn that there were many gods and that this was a to show like God Yahweh is the one that's yeah. The true you know, God. But so that wasn't true. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, and you have this difference between Pharaoh who just arbitrarily out of fear says, Let's just kill all of the baby boys to a God who says, I'm gonna give you chance after chance after chance and warning after warning after warning and way out after way out after way out. Uh, before destruction happens. And so you get this contrasting of uh, you can choose which God to serve and this is what this God looks like and this is what this God looks like. Um, which, which one would you prefer to serve? We'll see that later as well. You know, Pharaoh demands more work, more bricks with less straw um, and God demands a whole day of rest where you do absolutely nothing. So lots of, lots of contrasting of who is God versus who is Pharaoh. And then a final question just to kind of wrestle with is what kind of God would Yahweh be if he had not responded to the cry of the Israelites? Uh, I think sometimes as we're reading this text, we look at um, what we see as maybe some, we interpret what God, Yahweh has done as injustice, but what sort of God would God be if God had simply allowed that suffering to continue? All right. I know it's been a heavy week. Sorry for having such a downer of a class, but thanks for your great discussion. Um, and we'll see you next week. We'll be talking about the crossing of the Red Sea next week. Um, so if you want to read ahead, uh, we'll be in the rest of 12 through half of 15. I don't remember the exact verses, but uh, about half of chapter 15. So if you want to read ahead um, and come back next week to, to share more about that. Thanks, guys. Hope you all have a great week. <laughs>